There we go. My voice sounds so much deeper when it's mic'd, doesn't it? Yes. We're in Philippians chapter 2, picking up where we left off last week. We're going to go through verses 12 through 18, perhaps. What Paul's been talking about to uh, this church is, at least in part, is the disjunction between what we profess as followers of Christ and what we do are often vastly different. In other words, we don't always live what we preach. We don't always do what we say we believe. Let me take one example this morning to start out with here, which I believe that most people are going to be familiar with it, even if they don't have any kind of church background. Let's think about what is commonly called the golden rule. That's what Christians know it by, at any rate. The golden rule exists, at least in, in uh, you know, some kind of a retweaked, retranslated, reinterpreted, paraphrased sorts of versions. It's cited by people from all walks of life. And there is some form of a variety of the golden rule, at least the foundations of it, found in 21 different religions and philosophical systems all over the world. For example, in Buddhism, the golden rule is expressed this way, hurt no others, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. In a Native American tribe that existed around Arizona and New Mexico called the Pima tribe, they had a statement or saying that said, do not wrong or hate your neighbor, for it is not he who you wrong but yourself. In the Roman pagan religions, they had a statement that said, the law imprinted on the hearts of all men is to love the members of society as themselves. And, of course, Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount is where he said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. These are all nice sentiments. And if the world, regardless of knowing you know, what the derivations were, where they came from, or anything else, knowing none of that, if the world just lived by what they professed, the world would certainly be a better place. But alas, the cynicism of a corrupt world does at times, with somewhat a tongue-in-cheek attempt, reshapes and rephrases the golden rule to something more like, do unto others before they do unto you. And if we're honest, we probably all fall in that line uh, more often than we care to admit. Well, Paul, again, is writing to some of his very favorite people at the church at Philippi. And he commanded them last week in chapter 2, verse 12, this is old material, he commands them to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I explained this toward the end of last week's message, stating that while this particular passage is often thought to be controversial, seems to be a verse that even contradicts the, distinct, the distinctive doctrine, Christian doctrine, called justification by faith, it doesn't need to be taken in that light at all. And again, I explained all that last week, and you can get any of our past messages at our website online where you can listen uh, right through your computer, or you can download them and burn a CD, or you can even download them in MP3 format and play on your uh, MP3 players and Apple products and all of that good stuff. So suffice it to say this morning that working out one's salvation must not be confused with working for one's salvation. 
And what it means is to continue learning and doing what the Lord wants for our life. It means adopting the values that He wants us to adopt. And in short, having the attitude in ourselves that Jesus had and has, because after all, Jesus is very much alive all the time. Now, the truth of the matter is, and Paul realizes this, is that that's no no small order. And that is why he adds verse 13 by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, where he says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure, which is the way the way the only which is the only way anyone can actually live this particular way. And it's an important consideration because now Paul in the new information, if I can get my tongue untied here, Paul gets specific in a general kind of way in the very next verse, verse 14, where Paul writes, "Do all things without grumbling or disputing." Now, we might want to think, okay, no need to linger here. Nothing to see. Move along. Move along. This isn't the verse you're looking for. Well, what did Paul mean by all? Did he mean that faithful Christians should be, in the name of being God-honoring and Christ-like, that we should become the consummate doormats of society? Does it mean never questioning or ever arguing or grumbling about anything? After all, again, he does say, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So think about this now. If, if all means all in this ultimately comprehensive sense without context. So your boss calls you in one day. You know that this is a true story from my own life. He calls you in one day and explains that the Joint Commission for the Accreditation of Hospitals has inspected the hospital as they do, uh, I don't know if it's annually or what, but it's an exceedingly important inspection for hospitals because your reimbursement for your medical costs and everything that you would get from any kind of government program, which means Medicare in particular, hangs on the line of you passing that particular inspection. The hospital did not pass that inspection due to medical records not being up to snuff. And so they allow you a re-inspection to make good on everything, and then everything's cool. Well, medical records was not even one of my departments at this particular hospital, but the administrator knew that I was a go-to kind of guy. He just misunderstood who I was at the core of my being. So when he called me in and he asked me to make those delinquent medical records disappear on re-inspection, maybe he didn't realize that I knew that that was a felony. (laughs) Yeah. But, okay, Lord, so I was in your word this morning before coming to work. Golly gee. And here's what I read. Cripe, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Hmm. Okay. What to do? What to do? Let me give you another scenario. I know this is also real life, not for me personally. You're a nurse who has some very deeply held convictions as a result of your faith concerning abortion. You are opposed to abortion. But, golly gee, you happen to get up in the morning and you read this exact same passage, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so you start thinking, well, the government has decreed that it's a woman's right. And here, lo and behold, through the the quirk of the way things are in the business world, 
you've been transferred to a unit in the hospital that performs what are called VIPs, voluntary interruption of pregnancies. See, we like putting nice names on things that are horrendous. Wow. Again, what to do? person's trying to weigh this out, think through it, trying to reconcile Paul's passage there with her own convictions. And then she remembers, too, that in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, writing the Church of Rome, says that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Hmm. Do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing. So what we have to do is we have to come to a passage like this and we have to ask, what is the context in which Paul presents this imperative? This isn't a suggestion. It is a command about doing all things without grumbling or complaining. That's called letting the Bible interpret the Bible. He's writing the believers, as I said, who are part of the Philippian church in the city of Philippi. He's writing to them in previous verses that we've talked about over the past several weeks about adopting a life attitude of service and of self-sacrifice even at the expense of personal preference or desire. Let's remember Paul's prefacing words from last week and the week before. He writes in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then again, we cannot forget the salient foundation to this whole passage given from Paul's counsel in verses 5 through 7, where he says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the very form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. So the context for this particular statement, do all things without grumbling or disputing, focuses on interpersonal relationships and service within the unique organization called the body of Christ or the church, the true church universal. But as quickly as I say that, let me talk out of the other side of my mouth and make sure you understand that that does not mean that there are no derivative applications outside of a church context, but it starts in the body and then works its way outward. So the command is clear to the believers of the church throughout the ages. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Verse 15. I've translated this to give a better sense of the intent of the passage from the Koine Greek. Why do all things without grumbling or disputing? It is so that you yourselves will become to be blameless, innocent children of God, as you learn to do all things without grumbling and complaining, resulting in your being above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now, there's a ton there. Let me start by asking, what do we mean by being above reproach? In adopting the attitudes of Jesus towards your brothers and sisters in the church, which again is sort of our proving ground, our reputation, as we learn to do that and succeed in that, will precede us as we function outside the walls into the non-churched realm, 
where despite what they may think of us, we will be above reproach. But that doesn't mean that we won't be reproached by them. On the contrary, in fact, we will be. So it's like, okay, wow, you were taking me down this road, now you just did a U-turn, you're going back down that road, just stay with me, don't check out. Remember, the world loves criticizing the church. But being above reproach doesn't mean we won't be criticized. It means that the criticism will never stick. It means that in the eyes of the one who counts, meaning the Lord God of the universe, the criticisms, though they will come for sure, they will not ever be legitimate. So, again, is the church reproached today? Well, of course it is. The world believes, in fact, that Christ-following people of faith are public enemy number one, truth be told. Oh, not by everybody, to be sure. But there is this growing idea, because of our commitment to moral absolutes, which, another phrase for that, are the attitudes that we are to make our own, which belong to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, that we are public enemy number one. Now listen to my wording here carefully. And so because of this, we are judged for being judgmental. Oh, the irony. We are hated for being, supposedly, hateful. We are unaccepted because we are unaccepting. (laughs) And we are the main reason, according to their ways of thinking, that there is social injustice in the world. And in fact, we are the reason that we don't experience now peace and harmony in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our communities. It is commonly viewed today, and it's growing, that we are the ones who are standing in the way, just to use one example because it's a huge one and it's right out there in the middle of our culture today and has been gaining steam for 25 years, but we are the ones viewed as standing in the way of homosexuality being completely embraced, being completely accepted and affirmed in society. And because of this, that's the reason why homosexuals are not able to live fulfilled and happy and contented and peaceful lives. It's all because of us. This is how we are viewed by many. And it will continue to grow as the days tarry until the Lord returns. These are the reproaches that Satan has implanted in the minds of so many. Well, okay, all right. Paul says, though, that in our doing all things without grumbling and disputing, nevertheless, we will be lights among the darkness. Now, let's look at it again. Verse 15, again, I should have probably put another pastoral head alert, you know, head exploding alert up on the back, but stay with me. Verse 15 says that we will be found to be conducting ourselves as genuine children of God, And 
we will be blameless and innocent, this is what the passage says, even appearing as lights in the midst of perversion and darkness. Now, because of the way that this reads, a careless reading of it, makes us think that we will be viewed this way by the non-churched, or by the unchurched, or by the world. But verse 16 qualifies this for us. First part of verse 15, uh, 16 says, We will be blameless and innocent, appearing as lights in the world, holding fast the word of God. So it explains what it means by being blameless and innocent. So let's now parse this. What does it mean to be light to the world? Well, frankly, it depends on who's answering the question. Let's take three situations. If you ask an atheist, what does it mean to be light to the world, they would answer, I would guess, something along the lines of, well, it means to help your fellow man understand that pleasure is the chief end of man, and that it means helping your fellow man to be in tune with what that might mean for him or her, and then helping them to achieve that happiness without any kind of moral judgment. That's the atheist, what it means to be a light in the world. Well, what about to somebody who considers themselves spiritual? And I mean spiritual here in the broadest sense. They might say something along the lines of, well, being a light to the world is, again, being kind to your fellow man and, of course, animal, being true to the divine within you, whatever that means to you, and leaving the world in a better place than you find it. Now, if you ask the follower of Christ what it means to be a light to the world, hopefully it means knowing what pleases God and striving to live by His standards, even when those standards standards are despised by the world to whom it says we are lights. So then, still parsing, what is the purpose of light? Well, let's think of it in a literal sense of light, illumination. What is the purpose of light? You walk into a dark room and you want to be able to see and function, you turn on a light. And what does the light do? The light disperses or dispels or it chases away, it removes the darkness. Because of that, if I can personify now light and darkness, darkness by nature does not like Light. What do we read in John chapter 3, verse 20? Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? For fear that his deeds will be exposed. Hmm. Well, there's a minor eureka here. Why was Jesus executed? Well, some people like to put out there that because he was he was just he was a radical. A radical what? Well he was just radical. Some people will say, well, he was radical in professing some kind of new religion. Others will say that, well, he was just becoming too popular among the people, and so their allegiance and their loyalty was shifting away from the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, or switching their allegiance and loyalties away from Rome to this person, Jesus. It is because 
the light of the world exposed evil and wickedness by his very existence. And so great was the conviction because of the darkness that is in all of our souls. So great was that conviction that they had to remove him from sight and to remove his influence. That's why Jesus was crucified. Well, what this means is is that the faithful Christ follower, the one who is living as light to the world, will not be darkness's favorite person. So in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we are categorically, as we operate and function as the children of God, we are or will be lights in the world, exposing and chasing away darkness as we live faithfully as children of God. Verse 16 qualifying that, meaning as we are holding fast to the Word of God. And we know that the world is hostile to the Word of God. So verses 15 and 16 do not say that we will be recognized and congratulated for being those lights by a crooked and perverse generation. And again, Jesus was all of these things that we are supposed to be in the infinite way. And yet he was not acknowledged as the light of the world. He was executed. So what it means that we are to live as blameless and innocent children of God and lights to a crooked and warped generation is that while being reproached by them, none of their accusations will include a legitimate charge of the deplorable, unkind, disrespectful, corrupt ways that people of church, no, not this church, of course, but some people of some churches deal with each other. And unfortunately, right now, still in the news, still out there, is an unfortunately good illustration of what is never supposed to be the case in the family of God who are acting like children of God. And I'm referring to the catastrophe of what has happened at what was called Mars Hill Church or Mars Hill Ministries out in Seattle, Washington, under the leadership of Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll is a huge name, as we, uh, in fact, today being Advanced Sunday, when we watch our little video in past uh, weeks that we have done this, some of the videos that we've included had Mark Driscoll in there. I mean, he's just, he's huge, he's a big author, he's the megachurch pastor. Mars Hill's ministry has, I think, at least 13 different campuses, including 15,000 people. So powerful and dynamic was the ministry of Mark Driscoll that Seattle, Washington used to hold the title of being the most unchurched city in America. But from even secular observers, they said due to the ministry of Mark Driscoll and the Mars Hill people, that Seattle was going to be bumped from holding that dubious distinction. But now, what has happened? is that the entire Mars Hill organization has been disbanded. 
And all of those various campuses have been ordered by the uh, ministry of Mars Hill that you are now cut loose. You are now free and clear to do whatever you want. You can become independent. You can close down. Two have already shut their doors and closed down. And think of all those thousands of people who, if the ministry was healthy in all the ways that I believe it was, are very, very, relatively speaking, young Christians. Can you imagine how their world of faith is upended? And you say, what was the issue with Mark Driscoll? Well, fortunately, it wasn't as we've come to almost expect. It wasn't because of infidelity. It was because, and you have to imagine now how compelling this has to be, and in fact, as the days have gone on and more and more people from staff working right under Mark Driscoll and for Mark Driscoll and everything else, was that Mark Driscoll apparently was a tyrant. He was a vulgar, um, expletive, you know, uh, yelling kind of individual who would talk behind his own employees' back, the people closest to him. He'd say this to their face, and then another coworker would come in, and he'd be ripping and shredding that person down. And it just it spread throughout the entire organization until finally he was called on it, and it was so compelling that you see the net result. The entire thing now is crumbling and going into the dust. Again, think of the magnitude of the impact, just on the Mars Hill people, but even broader now, as the already cynical, skeptical world looks at that, and they go, yeah, those are children of God. That's exactly why I will not darken the door of a church. Bunch of hypocrites. If that's what Christianity is, and apparently it is, I don't want any part of it. Paul's trying to encourage the Philippians. And he's not done it just this once. And the Philippian church, as I've stated in past weeks, was the better than average church, and it was one of Paul's favorite. And yet he keeps coming back to them and telling them, look, you've got to live what you believe. You have to adopt the very attitudes and mindset of our Savior and Lord himself. And that is how you function with an individual within the church who may be himself, got his issues or her issues or whatever, but don't just think about yourself. Don't always dig your heels in for what you want, your personal preference, but consider everybody else before yourself and put them ahead of you and do all things without grumbling or complaining. No, the leadership at our church. Hey, don't shoot the messenger. Okay. It seems to be a reality at some level in the church at Philippi. And yet under the doctrine of inspiration, the Lord included it for the church throughout the ages. And so we need to listen up. Let me have you stand. I'm going to remind you, um, we're going to ask the men to just stay behind for about 15 minutes this morning. And uh, ladies, you can go enjoy the... Um, the cafe that we don't have. Uh, anyway, Father in heaven, you've pronounced us as children of God, and so that is a given. So we do not even pretend that we have to work for our salvation. You have granted that to us, calling us your children intending for us to be lights to a dark world. 
So help us, O God, to work out our salvation, becoming in reality what you have declared us to be, to the glory and praise of you and to your work on earth. In Jesus' name.